Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. All right. Now, uh, right now, let's talk about uh, Amazon and Alphabet, parent company of Google Earnings with Gene Munster. He is with the Loop Ventures. And uh, Gene Munster, uh, tell us, well, first of all, congratulations on Loop Ventures, as always, uh, for your uh, prosperity and your, your upward trajectory. Uh, Thank it, you. You're going to match that along with what's going on with Amazon and Google? Because, uh, you know, you, you seem to have uh, hitched your ride to two behemoths that just keep growing. Yeah, I think so. I mean, these are both mega cap companies that are enjoying a phenomenal core business and have some other bets that should really reinvent these companies over the long haul. So I just want to give you two quick uh, points. First is on Amazon. Their unit growth is 24%. That's the pace that they sold units. That was the same unit growth as in the December quarter, which is hard because the numbers get bigger. It's harder to continue that. So that's the impressive number. And from Google's perspective, they had paid click growth, that's the key metric, of 44%. And the street was looking for, it was up from 29% last quarter. So what I really want to emphasize here is these are behemoth companies. Their core businesses are doing phenomenal. But the other crazy part is that they're, investing in these other optionality values that will reinvent these businesses in the next decade. You know, as you talk about these behemoth companies that are taking over everything, I have to bring up the main theme that is on a lot of people's minds. At what point are these companies too big and are actually restricting growth in other parts of the economy and are frankly uh, stifling out any competition that could possibly come up? Well, both of these companies have a disruptive factor on competition. So in Google's case, they had a, a huge impact in the media world, obviously Amazon, what they've done to brick and mortar. And so, yes, they are causing uh, an incredible wake of uh, heartache for other companies. But the reality is, is that this is how consumers want the future to evolve, and they are defining that. And so I think that uh, that's just the, they're not too big. To, to They still have room to get bigger. And unfortunately for other companies, they're going to get uh, some companies, a lot of companies will get run over. Gene Munster, just to put you know, your numbers into perspective, all right, so 24% unit growth at Amazon at a company that is doing has a run rate right now of 142 billion dollars. It's really hard to uh, put your mind around it. We love doing this kind of stuff, but one other thought here is that if you think about total e-commerce in the US, about 20% of it today is, is Amazon, as you mentioned growing 24% overall e-commerce in the US is growing at 8%. So these are just uh, staggering numbers, and, and I want to make sure we also talk a little bit about what some of the things that both these companies are working on, because that, I think, is equally as exciting. Well, go for it. Yeah, go for it, Jim, because as you say, this is almost like creative destruction, and uh, it is really, uh, well, it's creating the future now. It is. So in, in Amazon's case, the three areas that they're really focused on are media, fulfillment, and then uh, international. But media, this basically they want to become more like a, a Showtime or an HBO and just continue to add content there. Fulfillment, they're doing last mile. And then for Google's side, I just want to leave your listeners with a, a new word called TensorFlow. TensorFlow. And, and remember that because this is the new platform that Google has 
that allows anybody to access it for doing machine learning and artificial intelligence. And they basically, Google's allowing everyday people and companies to access all of their learnings in machine learning. Their CEO mentioned, Google's CEO mentioned this. So the first thing he mentioned on the call last night was TensorFlow. And I just want to point that out. This is an example of how Google is going to redefine themselves over the next decade. What about the Google car? I know that that was something that was a pretty hot topic a while back, but now there's sort of this feeling that in Detroit, the, the big behemoth automakers are really going to have the upper hand when it comes to autonomous driving and electric vehicles. I think Detroit is going to be in a world of hurt in the next 20 years. Uh, I'm sad to predict that, but I think that that they just have a lot of uh, infrastructure around manufacturing and labor uh, that is difficult for them to break from. But but Google Google is going to take over? I think Google, Tesla is in a a great position. Uh, Google mentioned on their call last night that they see their Waymo division, which is the car division, to also be in public transportation. I mean, this is the type of broad thinking that we're hearing from Google when you just don't hear that type of broad thinking from Detroit. You know, Gene, I I just want to take you back to this tensor flow, T-E-N-S-O-R flow, because this is really an amazing site that, uh, well— you know, you get to use words like neural networks for machine translation. I'm not sure exactly what that is. I can make a guess. But what are the kinds of companies that will be using this? So that what that is is basically Google allows you to use their voice recognition. So we can just tap into that and it can listen to what we're doing. It can do a transcript of it and start to build insights from those transcripts. So that's some of the things that you're talking about there. But other things that this uh, TensorFlow does is allows you to use Google's learnings by looking at an image. So uh, looking at an image and reading what that image might, uh, information about that image. Right. And so it is, uh, it's just the start of what is going to be a machine-learn-driven world. Yeah. Gene Munster, thank you so much for joining us. We could talk a lot about this. Uh, unfortunately, we have to leave it there. Gene Munster is the co-founder founder of Loop Ventures, former managing director and senior research analyst at Piper Jaffrey Companies. I'm Lisa Abramowitz here with Pim Fox. You've been listening to Bloomberg Markets on Bloomberg 1130. did get our GDP report this morning, and the U.S. economy uh, expanded at the slowest pace in three years. This is perhaps due to the weaker auto sales and lower home heating bills. But does this signify some kind of broader weakening that is starting to set in? We want to find out. Constance Hunter has some answers for us. Constance Hunter is chief economist at KPMG. And Constance, what was your main takeaway from this particular report? Well, two things. One, uh, I know everybody's focused on the the consumption data, because of course the consumer seventy percent of GDP, and it's very important. And the lower energy prices and and mild winter really contributed. That subtracted thirty basis points off GDP. Then the lower rate of consumption of autos subtracted another forty five basis points. So we're looking at factors that really slowed consumption in a concerning way. Even if you added back those factors, we only have a 1% annualized consumption rate in the first quarter. And the question is why? Because we've had 77 consecutive months of jobs growth. We're starting to see uh, wages go up. And not just the, the, the wage data that we got today, but for example, the Atlanta Fed has an index, the employment cost, their employment cost index, which doesn't factor in uh, 
benefits like health care. It's, it's the money that goes right to the individual, and it's only for families earning under $150,000. So it's a really important uh, piece of data, and that's showing at up 3.5% year over year. So this really is a puzzle. And, and so given that, I think we're looking at somewhat of a temporary blip in the consumption numbers. But the other thing that's not getting as much airtime is that we subtracted almost 1% off of the GDP growth rate because of inventory declines. And those inventory declines go hand in hand with um, imports. So we saw imports increase. We also saw exports increase, which is a really good sign. Even though net imports subtracted from GDP, that increase in exports supports the idea that the rest of the world is growing in a more robust and stronger fashion. So it's going to help lift GDP overall. And so I think we have a... Wait, hold on one second. I'm actually struggling to understand that, in other words, if inventories drop, that's because our imports are... No, no, no. no. Sorry, I I didn't explain that well. So if if we see this drop in inventories this quarter corresponding with an increase in imports, what it suggests is that next quarter, we're going to see those inventories Ah, built back up. There you go. Sorry. (laughs) Thank you for clarifying that. That wasn't terribly clear. (laughs) Uh, l- let me see if I can just understand where we are in the cycle, though, because I-, I keep hearing this idea that, you know, we're eight years, so whatever it is, seven years into a bull market, and there's this the business cycle, and then you get people who tell you that it's different this time, because if you measure it from over here, you know, it's not the same. What's your take on where we are in the in the business and interest rate cycle? Yeah, I think we're at late stage. We're in the, what I would call the eighth inning, and the Fed's job is to create extra innings. Right. Um, But we are getting to a point where we're having um, wage increases. We're going to start to see labor shortages when, I don't know, sometime in 2018, sometime in 2019. And that in and of itself is going to hamper how much growth we can have going forward. So I think we're going to be looking at all things being equal, which, of course, they never are. But all things being equal, we're looking at a mild recession sometime in late 2018, 2019, because of labor shortages, because we have increased wages. And that's going to put a crimp on our ability to continue growing. So just in time for the midterm elections. Just in time for the midterm elections. Okay, good. Just wanted to make sure we got that. 2018 midterm elections. Recession. A big R. Well, well, I don't know. Oh, no, According no, no. I don't know that it'll happen in 2018. I would say late, either like just sort of starting at the end of 2018 into 2019. I think we've got some runway. We'll, okay. we'll put you down for November 23rd. 2018. Uh, I want to just point out, yeah, for now, uh, I wanted to point out BlackRock's uh, chief executive officer, Larry Fink, was on Bloomberg television earlier this morning, and he said that it was improbable that the U.S.'s GDP will grow to 3% given the current demographics and said that right now uh, the U.S. is truly slowing down. Um, You know, Constance, you seem like it seems like you agree with him. Absolutely. And not just demographics, but also productivity. So potential GDP is the sum of the change in the growth rate of productivity plus the change in the working age population. Working age population is growing at 0.3%. 50% of that is is immigrants, right. by the way, and productivity 0.8. That gets us to a 1.1% potential GDP. 3% is a pipe dream. Constance, we were talking earlier about the results from Synchrony and Capital One showing an increasing number of charge-offs for credit card loans. How concerned should we be about this? Look, at it... It seems like it's a, it's a moderately worrying sign, and it's, it's something where I would say this is now an indicator you need to watch, whereas two, three years ago, it wasn't an indicator you need to pay attention to. If you have a dashboard you're looking at, you need to make sure this is on that dashboard. All right. That dashboard, we got to, you think that dashboard is on everybody's desk? 
Do you think well, everybody gets it? <laughs> we have a doomsday countdown, pretty much. Everyone here. Well, I mean, it, the only reason I ask is because it certainly doesn't look that way when you see, you know, when you see bonds sell off and you see people go into risky assets like stocks and high yield. Yeah. Well, look, where are we on bonds? 220? Yeah. Yeah. Right? So I don't know. That looks like a bond rally from where I sit based on the last six months, right? We had that, that, we had that backup in the 10-year yield, and now we're back down to 220. And my hashtag rates low for a long time has remarkable shelf life that has surprised even me. <laughs> And you're calling still for two more interest rate hikes. One, I think, one more this year. Yeah. So they had okay. forecast three for this year, and and I think they'll be lucky to get away with two two rate hikes this year. All right. Thanks very much. Appreciate it. Constance Hunter joining us, uh, KPMG chief economist. Much appreciated. We want to take a moment to let you know about something new from Bloomberg. Starting right now, you can use our iOS app or our new Google Chrome extension to scan any news story on any website, instantly revealing relevant news and market data from Bloomberg and other sources related to the companies and people you're reading about. So no matter where you're reading the news, you can bring the power of Bloomberg's news and data with you. It's pretty amazing. Download our iOS app or search for the Bloomberg extension on the Chrome store to try it out. Learn more at Bloomberg.com Lens. Well, the 0.7% increase in first quarter GDP notwithstanding, our next guest says that trends in consumer confidence are healthy and that consumers are expressing optimism regarding the short-term outlook for business, jobs, and personal finance. This all leads us to housing and Cheryl Palmer, the chief executive of Taylor Morrison. Cheryl Palmer, thank you very much for being with us. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Now, I was able to go through your conference call, and boy, there are a lot of different metrics that you use to judge the health of your business. And I don't know whether you want to start with net sales orders, just explain for people how do you uh, determine success, and then maybe talk a little bit about the regional strength, which you say is pretty comprehensive. Yeah, no, thank you. You know, we did report yesterday, and we're quite delighted with the results we were able to share. And there are a number of metrics to your point, but they all do derive from your opening comments, and that's how people are feeling about the world today. And I think there's been very encouraging signs as we, you know, came through fourth quarter and certainly came into the spring selling season of the first quarter. The consumer's feeling good. They're feeling confident, healthy. They're out there spending money. They feel good about their jobs. They're starting to see... Um, improvement in income, you know, affordability so is still very, very good, low interest rates. And that's, you know, that's creating um, an optimism in our business. And it really manifested itself through um, a 33% increase of sales year over year. You know, Cheryl, um, first of all, I wanted to ask if you are concerned about the pricing in certain markets, uh, particularly Toronto, San Francisco, New York. People are saying uh, that the acceleration is certainly slowing down, if not uh, you know, showing signs of petering out, particularly on the highest end. Are you seeing uh, something similar to sort of edify the concern of a sort of a slowdown in those markets? You know, we actually have had great success across 
all of our price points. Now, some of the markets you mentioned, we build in. We used to build in Toronto. We don't anymore. Um, but we do build in San Francisco. We do build in markets across the U.S. and to a number of consumer groups. And we are seeing strength um, at the first-time buyers. We're seeing it in that move-up second-time buyer. We're seeing it with our 50-plus. And those are some of our highest average sales prices. And um, some markets, you know, they are getting back to what I would call some of the historic highs, and some markets still have a lot of runway. But as we reported yesterday, you know, we've raised prices in probably about 40% of our community just in the first quarter. Cheryl, could you speak a little bit about uh, the Esplanade Golf and uh, Country Club community? That one is in Sarasota, but you've got a variety of them, and I want you to use that as an example of the kinds of products that you are putting into the marketplace and maybe tell us a little bit about the customer reception and, and cost. Yeah, that one's really exciting. Our Esplanade brand is in Florida, and we have 10 of these lifestyle communities throughout Florida. And the one that I highlighted in our call yesterday, you're right, was in um, Sarasota. And I spoke to the new amenities that we've opened and really the lifestyle, the Ritz-Carlton approach in our programming that we've created with really dedicated concierge staff. And we have seen throughout Florida and throughout the Esplanade um, brand building since the middle of last year through the shoulder selling season um, at a number of price points. Because even in our Esplanade communities, we build from, you know, the low 200s, well over a million dollars. And these are very discerning folks, know what they want, know when they want it, how they want it. And they're going to get exactly that. And we've had just a phenomenal spring selling season. And I credit the team's great execution in delivering new amenities with great poolside service and tiki bar, a new restaurant. That's how, i got to say, Cheryl, that sounds it sounds lovely. Uh, and too I'm, good to be true. <laughs> and clearly. Well, uh, but I want to also, uh, while we've got you, I want you to talk a little bit about where you are making new deals, where you are acquiring uh, property, because I I know Atlanta has been a focus as well as uh, Dallas, and you've got that Darling brand. You're correct. And so our Darling business is in Dallas and Houston, and we are certainly investing in it's, – it's new for us. I mean, we just introduced our Taylor Morrison brand in Dallas, so now we have both our Darling and Taylor Morrison. In Houston, we also have both brands. So Dallas, um, with the new Taylor Morrison brand, we're investing. California, we're investing. Um, some of our newer markets in the Carolinas, really across the portfolio. Phoenix is one of our larger, our larger businesses, so that machine continues to need to be invested in. Um, so we're looking for opportunities across the U.S. today. Cheryl, this might seem like a kind of stage left question, but in, in my <laughs> opinion, we, we read a lot about, you know, potential flooding on the coasts and concerns that potential buyers might have about this. When people are buying your properties, are you finding that a lot more people are talking about that, where it's located, what the potential risk would be in a flooding type of situation? You know, we don't see that often. Certainly we have, you know, exorbitant rains in some markets across the country, but I wouldn't tell you that that's top on but, folks' minds. But and not with rains. Not, not with rains. I'm talking about coastal properties as, you know, seas rise, because we've been reading a lot about, you know, that this could potentially even impede valuations in places like Miami or other coastal cities. Yeah, and really it's going to come down to, once again, we don't, we're not in Miami, but we certainly are in many coastal cities in California. And it really comes down to the design and the development of those communities um, and how that infrastructure has been created. And I'll be honest, it's not something that I would tell you is on top of consumers' minds. Land acquisition. 
where are you doing the most acquisition? I know you try to do it organically, but maybe give us some markets. So some of the markets I just mentioned, um, Texas um, is very healthy, California, Arizona. Um, our smaller businesses in Colorado and the Carolinas we are investing. And we're investing, over the last couple of years, we've done some um, acquisitions of new companies. Right now we're very focused on organic acquisition, to your point. And I would tell you, it's really across our entire portfolio. We tend to have our longer land banks where we build large master plan communities like our um, Esplanades in Florida, but we're still looking for opportunities there and then in Arizona as well. Are, are you concerned? Because this you, you, you're describing something that sounds like a perfect alignment of, of the stars, and I'm wondering when that happens, Do you? does a little voice go off in your head that says, well, this isn't going to last forever? Um, that voice is always in my head, <laughs> and that's why, um, you know, it might sound good, and it is, and generally I am very bullish on how the market All right, hang on. We're going to just have to break in. Cheryl Palmer, Chief Executive Taylor Morrison, thank you very much. Well, we want to learn more about utility stocks because utilities used to be the stocks you went to if you were looking for yield. But perhaps times have changed. We have John Bartlett. He is the vice president of Reeves Asset Management. He joins us here in our Bloomberg 1130 studios. John, thanks very much for coming in. Uh, are utilities looked upon as investments for yield or has that just been thrown out the window? Pim, uh, principally not. Yield is a very still important part of the total return of uh, um, of utilities, but but they do have an opportunity for you know pretty pretty modest earnings growth. We see the industry growing its earnings at about five percent per year, and that's really on the back of continued investment, uh, largely at the state level, but also at the federal level too. So. Um I want to I want to talk a little bit about infrastructure spending because mm -hmm. definitely uh, your world overlaps. We had heard during the campaigning season about a one trillion dollar infrastructure spending plan. We haven't heard much more about it, but you know, is there still some opportunity from fiscal stimulus that you are expecting to actually happen in the near term? Well, you know, the good news on that front is um, it doesn't really matter that much to me as utility investor. Um, one of the things we're really looking forward to right now is getting um, uh, five commissioners back at the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. That's going to, and that's probably the easiest way that the federal government can get money started spending on uh, infrastructure is just to get those uh, uh, those commissioners back in their seats. Uh, because once that happens, uh, there's a, a real spending opportunity. For instance, there's a number of pipelines that are just simply held up by the fact that they don't have uh, commissioners in their chairs. The federal government doesn't need to spend a dime to get that stuff going. Well, you know, uh, John, we, uh, Lisa and I uh, and the Bloomberg team, we were at the Bloomberg New Energy Finance Summit uh, looking into the future of energy. And the constant theme was renewables and the actual cost of generating electricity. And yeah. I'm, wondering, I'm wondering, you know, your, your firm has been, what, 55 years in business. You specialize in this. You manage nearly $3 billion. You've got an ETF that focuses on, on utilities. Which Maybe you can paint us a picture of the utility that is the most uh, forward-thinking when it comes to embracing this renewable and low-cost structure. Well, we're very excited, Pim. Uh, and if you look at the portfolio uh, that uh, that's in the ETF, the ticker symbol for that is UTES. 
uh, you'll see that we're we're uh, for us um, renewables are a very important focus for us. Uh, we see that uh, wind um, resources will become very competitive with uh, with other uh, forms of electric generation, even without uh, the tax credits that they enjoy today. Uh, generally speaking, the price of power is going down. There's not a lot of demand, incremental demand for new power. We continue to find uh, new ways to make uh, generating power cheaper, and the price of natural gas remains under control. So everything from from that perspective uh, really creates a great backdrop for investment in utilities or for utilities, because th you know they can go put put dollars to work and help uh, help their customers without having to go hat in hand back to the regulator asking for uh, for big rate uh, rate increases above inflation. So in your almost 3 billion dollar portfolio of assets, what proportion would you say uh is tied to renewable energy uh utilities versus others and how much has that grown? Sure. Um well, if you look at at everything that we manage, um our our largest single customer is our closed end mutual fund and the, the ticker symbol for that is is UT that's about 80% utilities. In fact, it's called the, the Reeves Utility Income Fund. Um, I would say across the, the rest of the spectrum, um, about 60% um, would be uh, would be utilities. And how much is that up from, say, five years ago? Um, I, you know, it's it's probably about about the same. Um, we um, will always have, obviously, a great deal of uh, utilities in what we do. It's something that uh, that we're, we're we're expert on and spend a lot of time uh, time studying. But what I like about this particular uh, portfolio, just in terms of its diversity, is it not just it does not just include what we consider uh, energy utilities. It includes companies such as Charter Communications, Comcast, Verizon. We forget that you know Verizon and AT and T. We forget sometimes that the telephone and the mobile phone operators nowadays are considered utilities, and therefore those dividends are available for harvest. Well, they're not regulated in the same way that utilities are, but but you're absolutely right. We we, we consider them core infrastructure holdings and uh, and we're very excited about uh, about cable generally. All right, cuz I noticed also and, I, and we were talking with Vince Piazza, our uh, US uh, oil uh, and gas analyst and one of the companies in here is Royal Dutch Shell. Now, he doesn't cover, but you know, I was looking at the dividend of Royal Dutch Shell and we're talking like over 7%. That's right. And Pim, uh, we're not really counting on a on a huge rebound in the price of oil right now. We're we're sort of we try to be as agnostic as we can to the price of oil, but within Royal Dutch there is a, a wonderful cost-cutting opportunity that's been at work and we think is going to continue to play out. Thank you so much for joining us. Truly a pleasure to speak with you. John Bartlett is vice president of Reeves Asset Management, and he uh, is focusing on utilities with a portfolio of almost $3 billion, uh, and certainly a lot of changes coming up with both the potential infrastructure spending as well as the move toward uh, renewables. One thing that we heard a lot about earlier this week, really, was uh, trying to make money off of renewables at a time when there is so much policy uncertainty. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.